0: Our Father, we thank you again tonight for the gift of Scripture, for the fact that thy word is truth, and that the Spirit of truth takes that word of truth and applies it to our hearts. We ask your Holy Spirit tonight to open our hearts to the truth of Scripture, that we may stand firm in an age of apostasy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Just to get a perspective uh, on what we are doing here on Wednesday nights, one of the Thursday nights, one of the things that I've tried to do is uh, pick key events of Scripture. Obviously, as we've gone through, and when we do that, what we're trying to do is use those events not just uh, to think about, his, think about history so much, as to use those Bible stories as devices that you can feed the imagery of your mind with. So, when we feel about who and what God is, who and what man is, what about nature, what about sin, what about salvation, that our minds and our hearts will dwell on those events because those events are the means by which God revealed himself. So, again, just to review, uh, we've looked at, last year we looked at four key events and we're going to... We're, moving toward this fifth one, the call of Abraham. Each of these events uh, depict, provide, or provide imagery for truths of Scripture or very vital doctrines. The doctrine of God, for example. um, Sometime when you're praying or just going anywhere, walking, driving or something, and you, you want to just think about who and what God is. If you will, in your mind's eye, remember the text of Genesis 1, for example. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and it came to pass. If you'll just rehearse that imagery in your mind. What it does, it clarifies and fortifies the orthodox biblical view of God as over against the pagan idea that God is part of nature and nature is part of God. It gets those two that create a creature distinction clear, that the Creator speaks and the creation responds. So, the same thing when we went with the fall, when we think about the fall, it's very critical because, remember we said last year that for every truth is always an error. And the great truth of the fall is that the universe was perfect before the fall. The fall was a fall, fall from something. It was a fall from perfection. It was a fall from righteousness. So it means that evil had a start. And, of course, the Bible says evil will also be shunted off into a garbage heap of history called the lake of fire and will be dispensed with. So evil is bounded. And if you will think again in terms of Eve and Adam reaching for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let that imagery nourish your souls. That's the way to feed yourself. And by feeding on the imagery of these events, we correct our thinking. It's a discipline to keep our thinking straight. And you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have PhDs. You don't have to go on all advanced studies. All you really have to do is just think of the simple stories of Scripture and circulate them in your mind's eye. Feed your soul. We have enough garbage imagery. We have all. We're surrounded by it all day long in our society. Now let's get a breath of fresh air and allow our souls to feed on some pure imagery, imagery that's correct, imagery that will Keep our thinking straight. So the fall is where we learn about evil. We learn that evil is bounded. We learn that evil began with a personal act of rebellion so that we are guilty. There's such a thing as ultimate responsibility. Final responsibility. What is the pagan counterpart to this? Because every truth has an error. And the counterpart we said last time was that evil is normal, evil is unbounded, and everybody's a victim. No, no, no such thing as responsibility. And, of course, that's exactly what we see every pagan society move toward, a forsaking of personal responsibility. The flood, what, how do you use that? Imagery in your mind's eye. Because think of Noah's flood and think of the word judgment, salvation. In order to judge evil, or in order to save from evil, God has to judge evil. So the flood at once becomes both a judgment and a salvation. God judges the evil world, and he saves out of it those who have trusted in him. And by looking at salvation in terms of the flood, it corrects your thinking in another area. In our time, religion, quote-unquote is always looked upon as some subjective thing of the heart, unrelated to the universe, the physical universe around us. But if you will nourish your soul with thoughts about the flood of Noah, you will keep from that error, because this will teach you over and over again that when God saves, He saves man and his environment. And until the environment and until the physical body is saved, the salvation process is not finished. That's why there's resurrection yet to come. That's why there's the new heavens and the new earth. That's why the universe will be recreated. Salvation is not complete until that particular time. The program goes on until that is reached. But regeneration is a precious truth. But the problem in our day, our whole society wants to psychologize everything, make everything subjective, make everything a matter of feeling. It's how you feel. Never notice how many times you catch yourself using the verb, well, I feel that. Well, you don't feel that. I feel that it's right to do this. Well, you don't feel whether it's right. You know whether it's right or wrong. You think whether it's right or wrong. But what's happened is, in our very subjective age, our verbs have changed. So we're expressing ourselves. You don't feel. Nowhere in the scripture is there one command on how you feel. All the other commands are obey, think, submit, be filled with the Spirit, which is not an emotional thing. I mean, the Bible's not denying the emotions. It's just saying, you know, um, the caboose comes on the end of the train and if the engineer isn't in the caboose, he's in the train, in the, in the engine. So the point is that there's a subjectivity. And looking at the flood prevents that. The Noahic Covenant. When you're thinking in terms of order in the midst of chaos, think of the Noahic Covenant. God controls the world and the universe according to His verbal promises that He has written into terms of a contract that has been signed. So, that's the way God rules. It's not a case of just physical laws. It's a case of a signed personal contract like you would write in any business agreement. God has written that. And this word here, that word covenant, is a very, very important word. And here's why. We said last year, we say it again, there is not another country or religion on the planet that ever has God making a contract with His people other than Israel and the Old Testament. Nothing. The Hindus don't have it. Buddha doesn't have it. Confucianism doesn't have it. Taoism doesn't have it. No religion ever has a contract between God and His people other than Israel and the Old Testament. Now, that should say something. It says loudly and clearly, that only the God of the Scripture reveals Himself in a personal way. That all the other stuff is hokey. It's hot air. It's imagery. It's subjectivism. It's dreams. it's, It's just palaver. But in the Scripture, we have God going on record historically to specific clauses in a contract. So, this is something to feed on when everything seems like it's going falling apart, is to go back to the basic, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I dwell, in, in spite of what it looks like, I dwell in an ordered environment. That behind the chaos, there is order. And the order is the order of a personal God who is upholding the text of a contract to which he has signed his name. So this is what we're trying to do is use these events to remember these doctrines, what kind of a what kind of God God is, what man is, what nature is, the issue of suffering, the issue of judgment, salvation. And now we're going to deal with we're getting into the call of Abraham and as I introduced this course here this fall 3 or 4 weeks ago, what we're moving to is the very very delicate and controversial aspect of the gospel. And that is, why is it said that one and only one group of people have the truth and no other people do? Why is this, this offensive exclusivism of biblical family? I'm sure if some of you become Christians in a family of non-Christians, you've heard this once, you've heard it a dozen times from your, from your people in your home. How can you be so arrogant to think that you have the way, the truth, and the life? And the only thing I can think of is one, one TV program back years and years ago. Um, who was the guy that started off the uh, conversation? I can't think of his name. Donahue. Phil Donahue made the mistake of inviting Bill Buckley as his guest. And... He got to one of those areas where he had Buckley in the front, and he was waving his little Donahue finger at his face and saying, There's The trouble with you Christians is you always think you're right and everybody else is wrong. And um, he thought he was going to intimidate Buckley. problem is that Bill Buckley is not the kind of guy that you can intimidate too quickly. So, quicker as a wit, Buckley looked at him, blinked his eyes, and said, Well, Phil, that's because we do have the truth. And it was exactly the answer that Donahue, of course, didn't expect because he thought he had set the whole studio up to ridicule and to intimidate him. He would never come back at him like that. And Buckley just looked at him straight in the face and says, because we are, we do. And it was neat to watch Donahue because he didn't know what to do then because his intimidation didn't work and Buckley didn't back down. Buckley just drilled him right back. Now... That's what we're coping with here with the call of Abraham. Why did God abandon the world system and choose out from humanity this subset and then forever after work strictly with a subset of people? Why did God do this? And you ask the average person out here in the street and they'll say it's very unfair of God to do that. And that's why we can't stand Christianity. You people say, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, what about the Muslim? What about the good person, this and that and the other thing? You've, heard, you've all heard this. So, that's, the, that's where we're moving. And this is why we're spending a lot of time at the very fountain of the origin of civilization to see there is a reason why God picked out a subset. It's always going to flow logically. But you have to start where the scriptures start. And we have to go back to origins. And in this case, we're dealing with the origin of civilization. So, we want to go back. And if you look at your notes tonight, um, uh, before we get to the notes, let's go to Acts 17, verse 26. Keep in mind that this Acts 17 passage is the passage where the Apostle Paul preaches the gospel to the center of Greek thought, Athens. And it's a critical address because it's addressed to Gentiles, not Jews. And there's a certain style, a certain logic, a certain approach that Paul used. And we know that this is not just for the philosophers at Athens because the methodology in Acts 17 is the same methodology if you'll observe Paul preaching in Acts 14. It's the same methodology he uses in Romans 1. Every once in a while you get some preacher in Acts 17 and he tries to say, oh, it was a big failure of Paul, see? He, He was trying to cater to the intellectuals and nobody responded and so on. Wrong. If that's so, how do you explain Romans 1 and Romans 2? The logic of Romans 1 and 2 recapitulates the logic of Acts 17. So they're going to throw out Acts 17 as a failure, you also have to throw out Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 and Acts 14. All those passages go together. It's a Pauline approach to the nations. And you'll notice that in Acts 17, verse 24, 25, and 26, and 27, this is probably a summary of hundreds of words that Paul preached that day because the Holy Spirit tends to apparently summarize a lot of these sermons. And you'll notice what he does. In Acts, in Acts 17, verse 24, he deals with the issue of creation. Now, you always hear it's, oh, we don't want to touch creation. That's a controversial thing. Let's just get to the gospel. Well, if you're going to avoid the creation issue, what are you going to avoid? The creator-creature distinction. And if you're going to avoid the creative-creature distinction, you've already started to compromise your view of God. So you can't teach about the biblical God without talking about the biblical God who creates. That's why Paul doesn't, does not avoid the issue in verse 24. Paul knew that people who follow Aristotle and Plato not only did not believe in this kind of a thing in verse 24, that they could not. If we know Platonic categories... And Aristotle's logic, we know that it was unacceptable to say what he'd said in verse 24, and Paul knew that. But Paul goes ahead anyway and says it, because you can't understand God apart from creation. This is why the great creeds, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Why does it start that way? Because you can't avoid creation when you're talking about who and what God is. So... Verse 24, creation. God who made the world and all things therein, since he is the Lord of heaven, does not dwell in temples, neither is he served by hand. So in verse 24 and 25, he is characterizing pagan religion. Then, he follows a strategy in this sermon that we want to remember. mentioned it when we started this fall. And that is the strategy of envelopment. In other words, Either you interpret the world through the Bible, or you will permit the world to interpret the Bible according to it. One or the other. And so the way you avoid getting trapped is to encircle the world and explain it from the biblical point of view. Don't ever let the world try to explain itself. Don't ever accept that, either in your own thinking, or always strive to interpret things that happen things you're interested in, the flow of life, the flow of history. Always seek, always, to go back to Scripture and anchor your understanding into some area of Scripture for that area, for that thing. And that way, you neutralize the toxins that are all there, the intellectual poison of the world system. Well, this is what he does here. Notice in verse 26, Now he applies the doctrine of creation to the generation of a pagan society. And he says, He has made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their times appointed and the boundaries of their habitation. Now you'll notice that he says he has made from one every nation of mankind. That is Paul's analysis of the world as a mission field. That the world has a primary unity. It is a geo, a, a, a geolo- uh, not a geological, a genealogical unity that goes back to the Noahic issue and Adam and Eve ultimately. And so all men doesn't matter what their culture is, doesn't matter what their language is, doesn't matter what their race is, it doesn't matter how long they lived in one place or another place. It doesn't matter what their language is. God has made from one all nations of men. It's axiomatic. And it has to follow. In fact, if that's not so, then Christ's death has a problem. Because Christ died as the son of Adam. And he died for all the sons and daughters of Adam. And if we have people who are not sons and daughters of Adam, then Christ didn't die for them. So, from one... He made every nation of men to live. Now look at what he says about history. And he includes the Greeks who are very proud and arrogant about their history. Remember in the New Testament how many times you read about the Greeks and the barbarians? It was their their way of saying, we are the Greeks and everybody else is a barbarian. It's a class idea. So here he destroys the class idea because he says, every nation of mankind has been made that is, every people group to live on all the face of the earth. You'll notice all the face of the earth because we're going to deal with that very strongly in tonight and next week. All the face of the earth. Not part of the earth. All the earth. What did God tell Noah to do? Go out and do what to the world? Repeated what he told Adam. Go out and fill the earth. So God made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and having determined their t- appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now notice, God determines the groupings. God determines the geographical groupings. You want a philosophy of history? Have you ever taken a history course that dealt with verse 26? Do you realize what we're looking at here? In Acts 17:26? this is the biblical philosophy of history that God shapes nations. He shapes them in space, that is, their boundaries, and their times, the rise and the fall of nations. It is all pre-tuned and adjusted by God. That is the biblical view of history. Now, I mentioned that I didn't want to discourage any homeschoolers that are trying to train your children in dates last week. I remember I made some snotty remark about History being just a pile of dates that you memorize and so on. Dates are important because it structures it. But what I'm saying is, my objection to that method of teaching history is that it teaches history like it's all separate little marbles, unrelated. It doesn't teach pattern. And I remember being very frustrated as a non Christian in high school learning history. That was easy to get A's in history. All you had to do was memorize the garbage and then burp it back and then you go on to the next lesson. But that wasn't learning anything. And that, moreover, wasn't directing me to do anything with it. And I felt very, very frustrated because history just seemed to me like a pile of marbles. This did this and this. so what? I mean, so why did somebody? Why did Columbus do this? Why did the Europeans go to try to colonize the North American continent? Who was there before them? Were the Indians the only foreign? Those are the questions I was interested in, not who did what on such and such a month and a day. Now those are those th- that makes sense if if those are fillers to the large framework that you pre-established. And what we're saying here in verse 26, there's the large framework that we have to work out of to get to the details. So God determines the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, verse 27 is the purpose of history. Verse 26 is the control that goes on in history. The grand movements, the migrations, the rise and the fall of civilizations. But verse 27 is why that takes place. Why, for example, did Spaniards, why did God let Spaniards go into Central America and massacre the Aztec and Inca civilizations? God obviously allowed it to happen. Why does God allow Hitlers to do the awful things they do? Why does God permit the rise of Puritanism to do its thing in New England and England? Why? Why? Verse 27 is a biblical answer to this. And yet, where do you ever hear it in a history course? It couldn't be clearer. And Paul knew this because he was an evangelist. Look at this. An evangelist, a missionary. And he trained himself in world history so he could move out into various geographical people's groups and immediately envelop them in the strategy of encirclement. He could encircle their whole way of life and their whole thinking with the Word of God. And he says, you Greeks, you came from the same mankind as the barbarians. You all came from the same thing. Your rise that you Greeks are so proud of is your great classic era of Plato and Aristotle. Do you know why God had the Greeks do this? He says, verse 27, that you should seek God. That's why. That you should seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him. You notice the word grope? Who gropes? The blind people. This is a left-handed compliment. That they should seek because they're blind. This is like God hurting a group of blind people out of the door. Pushing them gently off so they don't bang into a chair, so they can get out of the door. They're all blind. They don't know where they're going. And this is what God says. He's, he's contorting the times and the boundaries of people groups if they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And he goes on, etc., etc. Then he goes through a few verses, and he comes down to verse 30. Look at what it says in verse 30. Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now declares all men everywhere have to repent. In other words, God let the process of history go on until the gospel. So from Noah to Christ, among the nations outside of Israel, history was allowed to proceed to keep a minimal God-consciousness alive. The rise and the fall of nations had as its purpose to keep, verse 27, a minimal level of God-consciousness there. That was the purpose of history. God didn't force anybody to do anything. He was hoping they would come to Him. How? Through what they could remember that they had learned from Noah and Japheth and Sam and Shem who had passed down. They had information. Oh no, it's not anybody out there that didn't hear. Every people's group had originally a tradition from Noah. Now it got lost, it has got distorted, yeah. But they're not rising, people groups don't rise in vacuums. So, the point that is that with a gospel now, now God declares everybody always, look at the universals in verse 30, every man always should repent. In other words, the whole world's screwed up and the gospel is going into it. Basically, God says, all you nations are wrong. I don't care whether you've got good hot and tots or whether you have great Confucianists. You're all screwed up. And moreover, I'm telling you, you're going to have to totally change your hearts because you're all wrong. Now, that's the offense of the Gospel. That's why we are not liked. That's why the Gospel message is very frankly offensive in a day like our own time when it's sort of politically incorrect to make these kind of assertions. So, that's what we're gripping with in in this uh, area of Genesis. So, let's turn back now to Genesis where we are and in Genesis chapter 10, the notes that were handed out tonight get into the details of Genesis 10 a little bit. But we want to look ahead, in just before Genesis 10, the end of Genesis 9. Remember Paul in Acts 17? We just go through saying that the boundaries of the habitations and the times of the nations' rise and fall have been determined for a theological purpose. A theological purpose let me give you maybe a little insight into that, uh, how surprising this, this helps you think about history. Those of you who have worked a little bit in ancient history, think of the Romans. What do you think of first when you think of Romans, the great Roman civilization? What did the Rome do to the world? If you've traveled at all, or you've seen travel pictures... What do you notice the Romans left everywhere they went? Roads, bridges, some of them still in use. They had an engineering corps that you couldn't believe. Fantastic, the Roman engineers. Their army engineers built those roads so they could control the world. Now, that's what they wanted to do. The great Caesars, Wanted taxes, they wanted revenues, they wanted domination, they wanted empire, and so they built their roads. Everywhere the, Russian, the, the, the Roman soldiers went, they built roads. Russians can't build roads, but Romans could. So these people built this vast system of communication. Now, what came along just at the time that the Roman army engineers had completed many of their major roads? The gospel. And who used the roads? The Christians, to carry the Word of God. Now, can't tell me that all the activity of the Roman engineers wasn't being allowed for other purposes than those which the engineers themselves thought they were building the roads for. Do you see the irony in history? I remember growing up when I was in high school, the Chinese communists took over Tibet Suddenly the legions and legions and Chinese regiments moved into Tibet and they just shattered the the culture of Tibet. And at the time one of the most famous newscasters in the United States was Lowell Thomas on the radio. And Lowell Thomas went to Tibet. The Dalai Lama asked him to come to Tibet and Lowell Thomas popularized the poor tragedy the tra- tragedy of these these people in Tibet that suddenly had been dominated by the Chinese Armies, the Red Armies, moved in. Tanks, jeeps, guns, massacres. But what did the Red Army do? The Red Army, like the Romans, wanted to set up communications. And so what did they do all over Tibet? They gave them radio so they could listen to Radio Pei Ping. Guess who got on the radio waves with another message? Far East Broadcasting Company. Deliberately tuning in their powerful 100,000-watt transmitters to blast in right on the frequencies. So, now what? Tibet was known as one of the most demonic of all cultures in Asia. The red-hooded monks of Tibet probably have the reputation for being the most demonic, occultic people on the face of this earth. And they were the ones that were crushed by the communists. And the communists allowed all kinds of entrees for the gospel, not because they wanted to. It was because in the great grand chess game of history, Man makes a move, and God makes a counter-move. Nice of you to do that. Boom. You lose. So, this is how God rules in history. And that's the irony that you want to capture in all this. Now, those boundaries in in, in, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 25, there's what we call an oracle of Noah, given about the shape of history to come. It's in the form of a blessing and a cursing upon and through his sons. We, we covered a little bit of that last year. But I want to refresh your mind about certain elements in that. Remember, Canaan, who was a son of Ham, is mentioned here because who wrote Genesis? Moses. What were the Israelites about to face when Genesis was first written? Canaan. They were going into the land. So obviously they needed to, some analysis of of. Where they were in history. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. We won't get into Canaan because i will have plenty of time to deal with Canaan here. What I want you to look at is verse 26 and 27, the word Shem and the word Japheth. Shem and Japheth are two of the three sons of Noah. Notice that Shem seems to be the one who will carry the messianic line. Notice it is Shem who is the one who carries and is associated with the God of redemption, the God of the Noahic covenant. You'll also notice the second son in verse 27, Japheth, is to be enlarged. He is to be made large, and we interpret that. And uh, part of the lesson handed out tonight, if you'll look carefully at the notes, in Genesis 10, verses 2 through 5, there's something happens in verse 5 that's unlike the corresponding verses for Shem and um, Ham. And I want you to see that in those notes. But as you, as you think about it, verse 27 in Genesis 9, God enlarges Japheth. That's saying something about the pattern of history that history will assume beginning at this point. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem. In some way, Japheth is dependent upon Shem. Now, without getting into details, let's skip forward many, many, many centuries. When Christianity moved out into the world, what did it move from primarily in terms of Shem and Japheth. If Shem represents the, the Semitic peoples, the, the Jews and the Arabs, the Middle East area, where did the gospel come from? It came from Shem. Where did the gospel primarily go? Northeast? Northwest? Southwest or Southeast from the Middle East? Where were the great missionary travels of Paul? Northwest. Where did Shem, the Japhetic, settle? Northwest. And it's striking that if you open, when we open our Bibles, there's two languages in the Scriptures. What's the first one? Hebrew. Well, actually, there's another one, Aramaic, but forgetting that for a moment, just the two major languages. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. That's a Semitic language. The New Testament is written in Greek. That's a Jephidic language. So, in the very structure of the Bible, you have this thing, this shape of history that's being built. All right, now tonight we want to move on to our notes uh, because we're still working this background of what Noah's sons went into. And we have to cover some of this background because if we don't, we wind up letting the world interpret this background in such a way that it discredits the scripture. So if you'll turn back to page seven to that chart, in your notes, I said that you can't get enough of that data. That chart summarizes Genesis chapter 10. From the time between um, Noah and Abraham, you have this process of decreasing longevity. So we have on that chart, we have people like Shem, living a long time, and then we have somebody, let's take um, from the chart, let's take Peleg, and he lives this long. So he's born here, he dies here, but Shem overarches him. And we said that if you take this time period, between these later men when they were dying and finally when Shem dies off in Abraham's time, you take this zone of history. It is a strange, unprecedented time in human history. It has never occurred before. It will never occur again. A very strange thing. For three centuries, grandfathers outlived their grandsons. For three centuries, the human race, as it was diverting and multiplying had these superintending giants whom they call gods. And this is why we believe that Shem, Ham, Japheth and their sons reappear in mythology all over the world. The later generations, the third, fourth generation, count down that chart about five generations and you get down to the people that are living less and still are unable to outlive their great-great-great-grandfathers. And they look back at these people, and these people must have assumed supernatural proportions to them. It's not out of imagination to see that. Now, on the bottom of page 7, I have a quote. And uh, as I said, uh, I'm not competent to pass on every idea that Dr. Pilkey has. But several of his observations are very insightful, and that's why I put this quote in here. The high longevities of Noah's immediate family combined with the Gentile Pentecost of human government to make that family the most astounding aristocracy the world has known. Nothing in human experience can compare with it short of the Christian apocalypse. During this period, all but one of the 25 dynasties of the Sumerian king list and the first 12 dynasties of Egypt ran their course and Shem outlived most of them. Now just think of that. That is unheard of from a modern historian's point of view. Absolutely impossible. This is fairy story. This is all mythology. But you see, it's mythology because we insist on taking processes we observe now and extrapolating them backwards. And what did we say last time? Remember last year we were saying, isn't that what evolution does? It takes processes of human reproduction, animal reproduction, Uh, certain adaptations, breeding and so on, artificial selection, and assumes that there's such a thing as natural selection, patterned after artificial selection, and it propagates those imaginatively backwards, taking the present as the key to the past. And this is an illegitimate method of reasoning. It's a pagan method of reasoning, but biblically we can't agree with that. And here's why. What do you do with this? How do you dare to take processes going on in 2000, 1000 B.C. and 1000 A.D. in our own day, historical processes that we can control because we've got a lot of data, and arrogantly presuppose that this couldn't have happened. The Bible data is it did happen. So you've got to use this when you interpret the data. The data can't be interpreted just in terms of present processes. And when you do this, That's what Gilkey says. It's an astonishing thing. Look again on page 8. During this period, I mean, if you have any feel for history, this is stunning. All but one of 25 dynasties of the Sumerian king list and the first 12 dynasties of Egypt all ran their course before Shem died. Amazing. He was around to see the rise and fall of 25 Sumerian dynasties. He outlived twelve dynasties of Egypt. Not only did he, but probably his sons outlived them. Amazing. Let's hold a place there and turn in gen- to Genesis 10 a moment. And just look at one of the sons of Ham in that list. In verse chapter 10... Verse 6, here's the sons of Ham, Ham the third uh, son of, of Noah. And the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim, and Put and Canaan. Now let's think, Ham is the son of Noah, so he is living like Shem is, long time. He has a son, Cush and Mitzrayim. Now Mitzrayim is strange because that's where it ends in I am, and it probably isn't a person. It's a nation. You know, anybody know what that nation is? It's Egypt. So whoever the son is, he is the one who began Egypt. He is the first guy that, and in history, the guy that pulled Egypt together was a guy by the name of Pharaoh Menes, M-E-N-E-S. And that Pharaoh was said to have commandeered power in Egypt and united Egypt because of a problem. You know what the problem was? Too much water. And it fits with what we were doing last time. The Ice Age was going on all during this time period, remember. So you have a cold climate. The storm tracks are south. The Sahara is well-warded. has rivers across what is now the Sahara Desert. But By the way, you can see when you get on satellite and a certain radar imagery, you can see the riverbeds underneath the sand. So all this was richly, was fertile area. And Mene's founded the Egyptian civilization by carving out stability in that Nile area so you could grow crops. Wouldn't be flooded out. Now, notice then, Mitzrayim would be the first dynasty of Egypt. He began it. And Ham is still living because Ham is his grandfather. Ham is also the grandfather or the father of, of Egypt, he's also the father of Cush. Now, does anybody know what Cush is? Cush is the founder of Ethiopia, obviously black. So now here we have a marvelous thing. We have a white son, Mitzrayim, and a black son, Cush. Now, where are these genes coming from? It goes back to the wives of the sons. It goes back to the fact that you had a lot of genes floating around then, and they were combining in all kinds of different ways. And you have origins. Now, it also is true that Cush and Mithraim both lived a long time. Where do you suppose they might have been born? Mesopotamia or Egypt? Matter of speculation. But presumably they were born in Mesopotamia. That means that Egyptians became Egyptians, not in Egypt. Egyptians became Egyptians in Mesopotamia. And then, after they had their Egyptian identity, they went into these areas. And Cush was a founder of the Ethiopian Black in the middle of Mesopotamia, from which he went into Africa. So, this is a very, very startling and radical rearrangement. I'm throwing this to you, and I'm making a point last week, this week, and next week, because I want to gets you to realize that we've been asleep in how we've been trained and educated in history. We haven't begun to probe the depths of Scripture in how history really happened. Maybe we won't know until the second advent of Christ what history really happened, what really went on in all of history. But we've got a lot of screwed up analysis. And we are very arrogant in how we think we understand history. Oh, this happened this way and this was not so fast. We gave you a map on page 9, that looks awful. And I proceeded to make another map so that you could at least read it. And we made the observation that if humanity diverged from the Middle East, it is striking to notice that the most primitive forms left, East Africa finds... Neanderthal finds, Peking man. Isn't it striking that these primitive finds are all on the outer end of the arrows? That if you draw arrows out from Mesopotamia, where the Bible would say that civilization diverged from, it's in the frontier areas where you have this apparent physiologic stress on the human frame. Remember, these people lived centuries. They lived in an adverse environment. Altered an altered interpretation instead of saying that these people evolved out on the rim and then somehow people all moved in from the rims to the Middle East to start civilization. The Bible says it's exactly reverse. They started in the Middle East and went out and deteriorated. Tonight in, in the um, notes, if you noticed, back on page We'll use a little bit, reverse this a little bit tonight. On page 11, we talk about the high intelligence and the high technology of Noah's sons. And on page 11, I deal with some of the anthropologists' most famous and well known observations claiming that you have primitive men. And in, on the first paragraph there, in the evolutionary view, millions of years are required for man's IQ to evolve high enough to support the cultural skills necessary for civilization. To support this belief, evidences are cited, such as primitive man's lack of inventiveness, the simplicity of his artifacts, the extreme conservation of his, conservationism of his customs, and the smaller skull size. Next paragraph. The Canadian physiologist, Dr. Customs, years ago, refuted each of these evidences as IQ indicators. The majority of intelligent people have never invented anything. How many people you know invented the wheel? Simplicity of artifacts are often the best indicator of inventive genius. The guy that thinks out and do it simple is the genius. Conservative customs in an extremely stressful environment is the safest way to survival. There are certain things they teach you in military survival school you better learn. And when you're down and wounded someplace, and the bugs are crawling all over you, and you're starved, you don't experiment. That's not the place to experiment. What you do is you apply the principles you learned in your training, and you stick with it because those principles are proven, and you don't have survival margins to experiment. You experiment when you have a little latitude for error. But when you don't have any latitude for error, and you're just hanging on by your fingernails, you don't experiment. So, if people were conservative, it might have been just the stress of the times, they didn't dare experiment. Not that they were too stupid to experiment, they were smart not to experiment. And finally, his grand and grandiose counter-illustration of a small skull, he points out that Anatole France's cranial capacity was 1,100 cc's, which is about that of the primitive man. Anatole France obviously wasn't primitive. Then he says on the next page that we have examples today of old Stone Age cultures. One of them, of course, would be the Eskimo. In a lot of Eskimo areas, if those civilizations would die out today, and you were an archaeologist digging 50 years to 100 years from now, and you dug into their utensils, you would swear you were dealing with an old Stone Age group. Does that mean they're stupid? That they have not evolved? And so it's a very interesting point in, in, that he makes in this uh, he cites this reference, who noticed that in Australia, when they took children, of the aboriginal tribes out of the tribe and put them in a western school and they sat right next to kids from western culture did fine didn't know they were supposed to be primitives and that's why that statement is so powerful the mental distance between a living so-called primitive and a civilized person is regarded as equivalent to thousands of years but experience proves that this distance where it exists is equivalent to no more than a few days for man everywhere and always is man. Amazing statement. But see, it gets rid of some of this garbage we pick up in all the history stuff we read. Just garbage. It's that we have bought into an entire worldview while we were trying to learn facts, we thought we were trying to learn facts, we were being sold an entire worldview foreign to Scripture. and we wonder why we have a hard time believing the Scripture. Now, I also cited some evidence of two major evidences on page 13 and 14 of the high intelligence. One of which is pretty astonishing. Back in the 1950s and early 60s, a guy by the name of Hapgood did some work in which he traced back certain maps that were, the the debate has always been where Christopher Columbus and the early explorers, where they got their maps from. Now, we never think about it. Now, most of us drive around the car and never see a map. Some of us can't read a map. I know people are great if they can get in the right continent on a map. So, the point is that to to go out on the ocean, and of course we always hear today that all the people in the Middle Ages believed the earth was flat. and that They'd fall off the edge. One of the little fairy stories that we learn in history course. Problem is, they never tell you that an Egyptian by the name of Aristosthenes measured the earth's circumference with a very simple experiment. He took the, the angle of the sun's shadow at two places in the Nile on a north-south axis. And he figured out the circumference of the earth at 25,000 miles, and he did it 200 B.C. Is 200 B.C. a little bit before the Middle Ages? So, the, the world was known to be round. There wasn't a worry about falling off the edge. That's some mythology, the more of the baloney talk we get. But these guys had good math. Not only did these guys have good maps, they had maps of Antarctica. And what's interesting, when Hapgood began to study the maps, he went back and he did an analysis. Now, just to show you quickly, because our time is running out, the map at the top of this diagram is a modern-day map of Antarctica. And Hapgood made an interesting observation that when he studied these maps, he found out that the bottom one which was made in 1543 from earlier maps, has some peculiar features. Notice it has mountains mapped. Here, of course, there's this mountains, but they're under ice. Here's the Ross ice shelf. It goes out to that much. This doesn't have any ice in it. It's all water. This has rivers completely closed off with ice, This map traces the river's inland hundreds of miles. Who did that map? How did they know that those rivers are there? We now know because we've taken sonar soundings below the ice so we discovered those rivers. Where did these maps come from? Who mapped Antarctica before it froze? That's the question. And, And it was frozen in 1543, so that obviously wasn't done in 1543. That goes way, way, way back in history. And I can't get into all the arguments, but Hapgood does an amazing piece of work. He's talked to cardiographers and all kinds of people about these. Nobody wants to make a commitment, of course. Obviously, this is a little shattering to find out that in the Pleistocene epoch, man was going quite around all over the world and doing mapping expeditions. I mean, this just isn't on the schedule here. We were we eating bananas when we, that was supposed to have been done. What, when, what is going on here? Well, what is going on is we appear through these maps to have evidence of a tremendous operation. If you look in verse th- on, on, on page 13, Hapgook's quote, The evidence presented by the ancient maps appears to suggest that in remote times before the rise of any of the known cultures, by that he means Egyptian, Sumerian, of a true civilization of a comparatively advanced sort, which either was localized in one area but had worldwide commerce or was, in a real sense, a worldwide culture. In astronomy, nautical science, map making, and possibly shipbuilding, it was perhaps more advanced, lone as this, than any state of culture before the 18th century of the Christian era. Mapping on such a scale suggests both economic motivations and economic resources. Organized government is indicated. The mapping of a continent like Antarctica implies much organization, many exploring expeditions, many stages, and the compilation of local observations and local maps into a general map, all under a central direction. Who offered the central direction? Who were the gods and the goddesses that were reigning in history at this time? Who were the magnificent people? Who were the Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their immediate progeny? They lived for centuries. They had plenty of time to do this. Remember that the Ice Age, if we reconstruct it along biblical lines like Orr did, we discussed that last time, if you map this out, it took 700 years after the flood where the ice built up in the Ice Ages reached a peak about 500 years and in 200 years began to melt down. And it was at this meltdown where the, contrary, the ice on Antarctica began to build up. So that would locate these maps as done somewhere in the first 500 years after the flood, which would mean they were probably done before Abraham. Now, why do we show this? Because I want to give tremendous power to the call of Abraham. This is a high technology. We don't want to ever think that God called Abraham out of a sort of primitive land with everybody running around in loincloths. On the contrary, these people could... To make a map like that, by the way, one of the things you have to solve, not only do you have to measure latitude, which is pretty easy because of the sun's angle, the one thing that's the problem and no one has yet explained how they did it, is how do you measure longitude? The way we measure longitude is by clocks, very careful clocks. But otherwise, if you don't have a careful clock, there's not any way I've ever read that you can measure longitude. So, in key in early navigation, and this is the problem early map, map people had, remember when Columbus and these guys across the Atlantic Ocean, they got a longitude problem, not a latitude problem. They could find their latitude. Question was, how could they find their longitude? Their distance, east and west. How do you do that? That's a hard question. It involves a lot of trigonometry. It's non-trivial type solution. These guys solved it. And the question is, how did they solve it? Nobody knows how they solved it. They had tools of some sort by which they solved it. The other thing that we want to show is the worldwide keywords of Semitic origin. We'll talk a little bit more about that next next week, but on the bottom of page 13, one of the other strange things was found by another researcher by the name of Cohane. Cohane discovered that in back of the languages across the earth, there appear to be Semitic roots. For example, he took studies where they took um, languages of the Aztecs and some of the Central American and South American civilizations, and they found a 20% correlation with with Semitic language. Why did the Indians in South America and Central America have so many Hebraic works? Why did they build pyramids? Why did the first settlers build pyramids? The Spaniards conquered these people because these people had this thing in their memory that the men who built those pyramids were white people. And one day those white people that built the pyramids would come back. And when Cortes and the Spanish conquerors came onto the land, they were accepted very naively by the Indians because the Indians thought these were white guys and they were the ones coming back. They were the same guys that built the pyramids of generations before their fathers. And they were deceived, of course, and the Spanish slaughtered them. But that tragedy was born out of this strange shape of history. History. We of course have run out of time, but if there's one other thing, uh, a little amazing fact of history here, if you'll turn back in the notes to um, page 10. One of the great showcases of evolution is how do you explain things like the kangaroo in Australia? After all, you have these these marsupials that are different from the placental animals, and they all seem to be concentrated in Australia. So obviously, said the evolutionists, that's proof, of evolution. They must have evolved in place. Well, there's an alternate explanation. And that is that they were man-introduced. That as man spread out from Mesopotamia, he took animals with him. And the interesting characteristic of marsupials is they do great on journeys. Notice, in, on page 10, talking Wood Merappy, who's done a lot of work on this. Many, if not most, living things have had a more widespread distribution than they do today. As humans were forced to leave their habitations around Babel, they undoubtedly took animals with them for husbandry, game, and a reminder of their former area of living. Introductions into barren continents had much greater effect on biogeography than later introductions. You see Why? I mean, we've got a gypsy moth problem on the East Coast. You know how gypsy moths came in the United States? On a boat in Atlanta, Georgia. One boat. The gypsy moths are all over the place, eating our trees. All from a, a, by an accidental human introduction. Go in the South, in Atlanta, in Georgia, and those other areas, and see this Japanese vine growing all over the place. Who brought that in here? It didn't float over. It was brought by people. So... How else would the people leaving the ark taking the only animals they had because there weren't any animals out there? All the animals had to be introduced either by wild migration or by deliberate human introduction. So, peculiar biogeographical distributions of animals can be explained again if we take the Genesis text literally. One concluding remark down at the bottom On page 10, I I refer to Job 40. And if you have time, you ought to go to that passage in Job 40 and read that because the critics of the Bible have a big fun game with that chapter. They say, ha ha, Job is talking about a mythological animal. And the reason they think it's a mythological animal is because they say, well, because it sounds too primitive. It was Leviathan. And we don't obviously know they don't exist and so forth. Well, it's interesting that there are rumors down through history that dinosaurs did coexist on into time, and if you've studied Chinese mythology, you're aware of the dragon motif. If you think of what a Chinese dragon sounds like, the, the whole description, very much like a dinosaur. And then, of course, in 1977, off of New Zealand, some Japanese fishermen caught this. Now, This obviously had been floating around some time in the water, and it wasn't 250 million years old. And you don't have to be a biologist to know enough about the birds and the bees that where there's one, there's got to be two. So what are these things? Do we really control our zoology? Do we really know all forms? Or are there forms yet out there that have never been seen by man? Or if they are seen, like this one, is totally misinterpreted to mean, well, it's some unknown thing. Well, the unknown thing bears a striking resemblance to a dinosaur. So, the point is that we know very little about many of these areas. And we have, unfortunately, even as Christians, we absorb this stuff that we're given out, just take it passively, never think about it, never try to correlate the Scriptures. And that's what we want to learn, the discipline of doing, of questioning, what we are picking up on our antenna from the world system next week we'll move now into an analysis Genesis 10 and 11 so please if you haven't already please read carefully Genesis 10 and 11 our father we thank you for the fact that you are faithful that you are faithful to your word that you are a dependable god that we can trust you with all our needs because You have proven Yourself again and again in history to be reliable. We pray that as our hearts are opened to the great, grand truths of Scripture, that we would be active and not passive in our faith, that we would consciously seek to subdue the world under the authority of the Word of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.